And Mike, the floor is yours. Excellent. Well, I recognize a few names on the phone call, so it's good to see that some of you are here again, and uh, some of this content might be familiar to you, but hopefully there's a few new surprises in here, too. Try to mix it up a little bit. Um, I'm really happy to be here today, and I really appreciate the extended invitation, uh, so thank you, Dan, for reaching out. Uh, I think we have a lot of exciting stuff that's going on in Astrobotic, and there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the moon right now, and you'll see a little bit about our vision and how we're trying to pioneer a lot of the services that we're offering to those people engaging with the moon. So my background, just as a quick overview, I run our lunar surface systems team here at Astrobotic. Uh, our team mainly focuses on rovers, small, medium, and large size rovers, and we're also focused on power systems. So whether that's power distribution or power generation, we have a few technologies that we're actively advancing. We have a number of other technologies that I'm going to showcase today that I don't actively manage, um, but I'm happy to take questions. Um, my background is I have an MBA, uh, so in business. I'm not as technically savvy as probably many of you are on the call here, but I have inherited a lot of that knowledge through working with some very brilliant people, so I'll do my best to answer your questions. Uh, if you have any uh, questions I can't answer, I'd be happy to follow up with the app. So with that said, let's get this started. Um, I'm going to kick it off with why the moon. So uh, as many of you probably know, there's a lot of interest in going to the moon. We like to talk about why Astrobotic is interested in this before we go into any of our technology overviews. So uh, right now, uh, we're primarily supporting some of the early science that's happening by delivering payloads to the moon. So the CLIPS program, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services program, is a program that we are involved in. We're very fortunate to be delivering several payloads to the moon. NASA is one of our customers. You'll see some of our other customers on our slides today. The reason why groups want to go to the moon today is to really just gain a better foundational understanding of the science on the moon, from the moon, and then ultimately we're trying to get a better grasp on the water resources. Uh, how we can harvest those resources, use them to live off the land, use it as a proving ground to go further into the solar system. Uh, we're not actively involved in any Mars missions or Europa or really further deep space missions. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we stick our landing on the moon first. Uh, but ultimately, there's a lot of interest in using the moon as a proving ground to go further into space. So uh, we hope that after the CLIPS missions have proven that they're successful, that there's going to be a rush of industry interest in going to the moon. And we are already talking to a lot of different commercial organizations, internationally and domestically, about how we can support them and, and support their business ambitions. So moving forward, we are about uh, a little over 200 people now. We've grown pretty quickly. Uh, it's been, I joined uh, when we were about 15 or so people. So it's it's really been an exciting ride, stressful and exciting, but more excitement. Uh, we are continuing to grow. Uh, we started as a spin out of uh, Carnegie Mellon University locally in Pittsburgh. That's where our headquarters is based. We've been fortunate enough to receive a number of NASA lunar-related contracts that we're actively delivering on. And we have two lander missions booked today, and we also have two rover missions booked today. And you'll learn a little bit more about those missions soon. Uh, we are now expanding into the defense arena, working with different DOD groups, and we're actively looking at ways to spin out a lot of the technologies that we've developed for the moon for use in other space and just terrestrial applications. This is our happy team here. Uh, this is only a portion of the team. Uh, we've got to update our picture. But there's a, we, we 
pull people from a lot of really experienced companies. Uh, a lot of people that we found really want to move back to the Pittsburgh region. Maybe they were natives and then they moved out to work on space projects. Um, because like all of you here, we're all really interested and passionate about space. Um, and when we're able to kind of merge space and also be close to family, uh, a lot of people really have appreciated that. So we've been able to get a lot of influx from, from very credible companies, people coming back to the Pittsburgh region. Excuse me, Mike? Yeah. Yeah, Mike, this is Dan. Excuse me, uh, but I want to remind you, it's very important to call out the slide number every time you switch, because when you switch, we don't switch unless you tell us to. Thank you very much for that, Dan. I'm not used to presenting on a telecom, so I appreciate yeah, no, that I, reminder. I understand that. We often have uh, troubles with that. But, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I am now on slide five for awareness. I've been breezing through here. <laughs> um, so you can see some pictures on slide five. And this is uh, some of our facilities that we have on site. Uh, we have two large clean rooms where we do most of our space, spacecraft integration. Uh, we just actually sent out our Peregrine lander, just finished full integration. It's going through its test acceptance testing at the moment. And then uh, soon after that, we're going to be sending it to the launch pad down in Cape Canaveral. So we are on track for our first mission, our launch of Peregrine lander next year, Q1 of next year. So it's a very exciting time for us at the moment. We do have a mission control location on site. You can see that uh, in one of the images there, uh, labeled C, that is our mission control center. We have a number of test facilities on site. In the image labeled S, there is a, a thermal vacuum chamber, and you can't really see it here, but there's also a, a vibration table that we use, among many other facilities, a, a fluid test lab, a high-power test lab, and, and several e-labs. Uh, and then I'm going to move forward now onto the next slide, which is six. We have, we have um, what we call a lunar regolith lab. Uh, we brought in GRC-1 simulant, so I heard some GRC people here on the line. Uh, we like your simulant. <laughs> we decided to use that because it works, to our knowledge, the best terra mechanical representative of driving on the moon. Um, there are other simulants that we can bring into that lab and test uh, in kind of smaller quantities. We have kind of buckets or basins that we can test some of our rovers and single wheels in. Uh, and then we also just recently opened our museum. So you can see kind of that's actually a rendering in the bottom uh, middle left image. But we do have our museum. It opened uh, October 15th. Uh, it's called the Moonshot Museum. It's a nonprofit institution, and it shares the same building as us. And we've just been incredibly thrilled to see how much interest there is in the region, people that want to come by and watch the lander get built. Um, we've talked about that from an, an export perspective, and everything is fine. Um, people can look at the spacecraft as it's being integrated, but we get a lot of kids in there that are really just super excited about what we're doing, and, and it makes us so happy to be able to contribute and hopefully feel like we're influencing the future of the space engineers that are going to come in and, and carry the torch after us. Uh, I'm going to move forward on to the next slide here, which is slide seven. It doesn't actually have a number on it, so I apologize. I must have missed that. This is an overview of our missions and our technologies that we have at the company. So uh, on the right side, you can see that this is our mission manifest. We have our Peregrine Mission 1. It's going to be launching Q1 next year. We have our Moon Ranger rover, which is a fully autonomous rover. It was originally intended to actually lost, uh, launch on Maston's lander, Maston's space system, 
uh, we have recently acquired Mastin, so we're, we're really happy. We're bringing on a number of other team members on board our team, and they've joined us. Um, what that means is that Moon Ranger actually does not have a lander that it's flying on at the moment. So that 2023 number is likely going to be pushed out, um, but it is manifested through the Clips program. So uh, we're excited to finally demonstrate some unprecedented autonomy capabilities, driving out a kilometer from the lander and driving back. And it's integrated with a neutron spectrometer system from Ames. So we're going to be looking for ice as we're driving on the on the moon as well. There's also, after that, there's the mission uh, that is the Viper rover that we're carrying to the surface. That's on our Griffin lander. That carries about 500 kilograms, the uh, Griffin lander. So it's a, this is a big rover. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, I believe, the biggest rover that has ever flown. Um, I may stand to be corrected on that. The LRV might have been slightly larger, but it's certainly the biggest robotic rover that's ever been up there. Uh, and then we have our Night Rider mission, which is uh, what we call our cube rover. We developed this at Astrobotic, and this is a, a toaster-sized rover that has the ability to scale up and be larger, carry larger payloads. You'll learn a little bit more about that today. Uh, but this is an incredibly ambitious mission. It has a radioisotope heater unit on board. So it's intended to survive the lunar night, and it has a phased array antenna on board as well. So we can drive out, communicate with an orbital asset around the moon, and relay our data back to Earth. So what we're really hoping to accomplish with this mission is drive very far and survive a long time. And we're trying to do it in a form factor that brings down the barriers to entry for groups around the world. Uh, we've, we've learned, we think there's a lot of value in making sure that we have a custom rover that can support small instruments and not necessarily require a very large rover to go to the moon and complete that mission. And we've, we've gained a lot of interest from, from that particular platform. On the left side of slide seven, you can see that there uh, are the rest of our products that we're developing. So uh, we've covered some of our landers. We've covered our smaller rover, Cube Rover. We also have a larger rover called the Polaris Rover. It can carry about 90 kilograms of payload. And we're looking at expanding that to support some of NASA's upcoming missions. Uh, LTV, the Lunar Terrain Vehicle, is one of them. Uh, and then there's also the Endurance A Rover that's coming up uh, from the decadal missions that we're taking a hard look at. And then you'll learn a little bit more about our power services today as well. Uh, uh, Lunagrid is something that we're championing here at Astrobotic. And it's, uh, the hope is that it will be the first power grid on the moon. And then lastly, with our recent acquisition of Mastin, we've inherited a lot of their great propulsion and testing technology. So the Zodiac lander in the bottom left image is what we use for now, suborbital sub testing. And we're really just carrying that program on from Mastin's uh, prior program. I'm going to move to slide eight now and show you on the right side, these are some updates uh, on our recent programs. Uh, I've already just mentioned that our Peregrine lander was shipped out for acceptance level testing. Uh, we also have ULA's rocket that's being built in parallel. It's really all coming together. Uh, it's been pretty exciting for us to see things like our logo on a giant rocket. Uh, we've never done this before as a company, so it's, it's just generally the, the excitement level is very high here. Uh, the Griffin mission, which you can see in the middle row here, uh, that's uh, images of our test campaign. So we just recently put this through acoustic testing, vibration testing. We've been doing a lot of uh, rover egress testing with Viper. The rover you see there is Viper. It's an engineering model. Uh, fun fact about the picture in the middle there is uh, we put this in a, a 
the middle of a bunch of speakers, and I believe the volume output of those speakers was twice the amount of Heinz Field, uh, which is right next door to us. So it, it was pretty loud <laughs> in the past. And then in the bottom there, you can see I've already talked about our Moonshot Museum. Uh, but these are some of the cool exhibits that we have uh, there on site, in case any of you are in Pittsburgh and want to come by and visit. I'm going to pause for a second. I'm on, going on to slide nine now, but I do want this to be an interactive discussion. But does anybody have any questions so far that I can help answer? Can you tell us a little bit more about the radio heating unit that you're flying? Sure. Yeah, it's a very small form factor, provides about three to five watts of continuous power. It's about one kilogram, fits in a 10 by 10 by 10 uh, centimeter volume, and um, it's commercially provided. So uh, the whole intent of using that RHU is that we're getting it from a commercial source and hopefully bringing also another new product to market as we do that. Did you uh, retain the Maston test site at, at, at um, Mojave? We did, yes. Okay, great. Are you open to uh, testing things there for others? Oh, of course. Yeah, please reach out. Feel free. Uh, my email is on the slide deck, so I'd love to put you in touch with that team. This is Carl. I have a question about your autonomy. The, uh, the one kilometer traverse, is that full autonomy or are there any teller operation involved with it? So, yeah, good question. It is full autonomy for that traverse, but the way that we've structured that comp is that in the early phases, it is teleoperated to do our checkouts. So as we deploy from the lander, that's teleoperated. We drive within Wi-Fi range for what we call the first trek, which is in the first 100 meters or so, a radius of the lander, to make sure that everything's working nominally. And then we do actually a loop a little bit out of Wi-Fi range to test the autonomy and make sure that it's working before it comes back into Wi-Fi range and we operate, see how everything performs. And then after that, we do a full autonomous run. We go out a kilometer and back, and, and that run is going to be entirely autonomous. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll keep going, and I'll stop again for more questions. So. Um, no need to, to throw them out here now. Uh, so I'm on slide nine now, and you can see our Peregrine lander here. Uh, we have 16 different customers from six different countries. NASA is one of the customers. Uh, they provided us an award uh, that was on the order of $80 million uh, back in 2019, and we've been actively developing against that. If you move to slide 10, these are some of the other customers that are manifested on that mission. So you can kind of get a sense of there's a mixture of a lot of different payloads on here. Uh, some of these are rovers. Uh, there's, there's a pretty cool one. The Mexican Space Agency uh, wants to catapult some little baby rovers out around the lander and test autonomy with those rovers. Uh, there's other things on here like uh, art exhibits, uh, one of which is from Carnegie Mellon University. There's also another rover on here from Carnegie Mellon University, which is very lightweight, about two kilograms, called Iris. There's a Japanese rover called Diamond. Uh, so there's a lot of different interesting kinds of technologies that groups are building their own business models because what we're seeing is that it actually can be more cost effective for somebody to bring a system from TRL 4 to TRL 9 without having to go through an entire test campaign and just bring it straight to the moon, and test it there. 
So it, it will be interesting to see how this manifest continues to unfold in our future missions. I'm going to move to slide 11 now. This is just kind of a quick uh, screenshot of where we, what our equatorial configuration of a peregrine lander looks like. And then we've also developed um, a polar configuration as well, which you can see on slide 12. So just like our rovers, we're also developing our landers as product lines that can be agnostic of lunar location. So we're trying to use a, pretty much a universal bus that has some adjustments that we can make uh, to support those different latitude configurations. And Mike? <clears throat> yeah. This is Dallas Beanhoff. Uh, what do you mean by moon tested? So, yeah, good question. So, uh, we've, I mean, you might, you're, you're probably very familiar with the idea that to advance from technology readiness level four to go to five, six, seven, et cetera, you got to go through um, lab tests. Then you got to do, you know, engineering model builds and test them through the different qualification campaigns and um, do your rounds in multiple campaigns, um, pay for the test facilities, et cetera. Um, we are trying to circumvent that whole process for certain customers that are interested by saying, well, you tested in a laboratory environment. As long as you can prove you don't do any harm to the lander, we'll bring you straight to the moon. You can skip all those tests and we'll just do it in the actual mission environment. And that way you may, in some cases, be able to save some cost by going to the moon first as a field test. Now you say moon tested in 2021. Does that mean you went through thermal vac cycles? Uh, yeah, we did, uh, T so I'm speaking a little out of my element, but I know we did uh, TVAC, uh, we did vibe tests, acoustic tests, uh, I want to say EMI tests, and there were a number of other, like, uh, functional tests, uh, drop tests, et cetera. Um, that's probably all I can speak to, though, specifically. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you, you have not actually sent a demonstration to the moon, right? That's correct. Are you looking at a, retaining a hopping capability so you can hop down into a difficult-to-access crater or lava tube or something like that? Not currently. It, it's a good question because there are groups that are looking at that. Um, Intuitive Machines is one of our, our competitors in this area, and, and they are developing a hopping lander. Um, there are different ways, as I'm sure you're aware based on your question, uh, to get down into those pits. Uh, some of the ways that we're looking at at Astrobotic are driving rovers into the pits with tethers and kind of lowering yourself down to go explore those regions. Um, it could make sense in some cases to use a rover with a tether. It could make sense in other cases to use a lander with a hopper. Um, I guess we'll see how that, that pans out with intuitive machines. And if it, it is something that proves to be useful, there might be something we think about. But at the moment, we aren't. Well, all those impact craters are have a... Uh, sample of all of the materials of the whole solar system, you know. So, it'd be, of course, a lot of that is ejected up onto the surface as well, but uh, it, I think it would be very interesting to get down in those um, impact craters. I completely agree with you, and I, I think that there are other things that we're looking at, too, in the sense of improving our landing capabilities, so our terrain and relative navigation, our precision with landing, so that we may actually just be able to land the lander in those craters, as impact craters, to explore, um, rather than you know hopping around to different locations on the moon. Ultimately, it would be nice, we to, kind of, be nice to do yeah. more than one in a single mission if you could, you know. 
Sure. Sure. Yep. Yep. Agree with that. Okay. I'm going to move on to the next slide, which is slide 13. Uh, this is just an overview. Again, I showed kind of a smaller image of it on our earlier slides, but this is our, our Griffin Viper mission. It's going to be launching in Q4 24. And uh, yeah, it's just a very exciting mission. Viper has a drill on board. It's going to be looking for ice uh, drilling and then reporting whatever data it finds uh, back to Earth. Uh, the Griffin lander dies after a lunar day, but the Viper rover is designed to survive for multiple lunar days and has its own ability to communicate with Earth. So we don't really need that relay communication capability after a day. So I'm going to go to slide 14 now. We're going to start to move away from our landers. How does it survive the lunar night? With batteries or an RTG or what? So the Viper team uses batteries and solar array to keep their rover alive, and they, they drive around um, optimizing their route. They plan their route uh, oh, yeah, to drive in yeah. Yeah, the minimal amount of uh, shadows, pretty much. Okay, but no RTGs. No RTGs, not that I'm aware of. So on slide 14, I show some of our capabilities here. I, in order to keep the file size low and, and do you all a favor, I, I took some of the videos out here, but uh, I did link some of them here in the image. This is just a video of our uh, some of our drone uh, testing capabilities. This is a uh, we put. Uh, simultaneous localization and mapping capability on this drone uh, several years ago, actually. And we're testing that that capability, SLAM for short, as we're flying around and pointing out different objects and capturing things like edges. Um, so that way it can be used as uh, one of the pieces that can inform an autonomy algorithm to help drones fly or rovers drive around hazards. Uh, in this case, we're trying to test a drone so that it could fly into a something like a lunar cave or a lunar pit um, and eventually fly back out. Um, so we aren't building any hoppers per se at the moment, but we are building some of the autonomous capabilities that could be used on hoppers. Uh, and that's a, that's a challenge because um, given that if we're flying around in a cave and you need to be propulsive, you're not going to have a lot of fuel and you need to do it pretty quick. So the algorithms need to operate pretty quickly, and they need to be pretty low uh, in terms of compute to, to enable that. So that's where a lot of this work has really gone, as a way to uh, reduce swap or uh, size, weight, and power of the systems that are required to use this. And then likewise on slide 15, this is also a video. Um, I did not, I guess I did not include a link here. I should have. Uh, but this is a, a video of the drone flying around in the cave. Uh, we lit the video up so you could see what was happening, but it's using LiDAR, so it actually doesn't need to have the lights on while it flies. And then in the image above it, it was producing a map in real time. So it doesn't need prior generated maps to complete its mission. It can complete them on the fly and uh, then share those maps uh, afterwards. On slide 16, I also have another video uh, with a link here. This was a test a very early test of our terrain relative navigation technology, which is a sensor that we put on the bottom of our lander to help us land. It pretty much compares data that we get on the fly using LiDAR and image data with prior generated maps that we've 
already uploaded onto the, the lander before its flight. And then that way we can determine our position relative to the known images as we're landing. So we are going to be generating maps on the fly as we're going down and landing, uh, but we are using LRO's uh, most recent maps uh, and their resolution that comes with that uh, to support the, the mission, and at least for now. And then hopefully as we get better data going forward, our precision will be able to increase uh, in our future missions. So now I'm gonna switch over to rovers. In slide 17, this is our Night Rider mission. This is our cube rover. I've already talked a little bit about it. Uh, we're intending to fly this in 2025 on Astrobotic's next commercial landing mission. And I've already talked about some of the goals of that mission. I just wanted to highlight here that there is some space available on that mission. So we're actively advertising that. I'll put a little pitch in here and say that if anybody has any payloads or knows anybody who's building payloads that want to fly aboard for this exciting mission, then we would be happy to talk to you. So feel free to reach out to me. Uh, we have about a kilogram of, of uh, mass available that we can fly on here that would fit in about a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter cube. So on slide 18, you'll see that uh, we have a lot of experience designing, building, testing rovers. Uh, this is actually how the company got started. Uh, Astrobotic was started as a competition to go after the Google Lunar X Prize. And after that, we realized that there weren't a lot of really affordable ways to get to the moon. So what came from that is that we started developing a lander program to take us there. And that's kind of really led us to where we are today, but we've never lost our roots in rover development. And some of the images you can see here are different rovers that we've developed over the years uh, for different reasons. Uh, one of the rovers there in the middle, the top middle, that's actually the Kennedy Space Center's pilot excavator rover. Um, it's actually a Razor, really, but uh, they're making a derivation of that, a smaller rover called the pilot excavator. And that rover is going to be digging up regolith on the moon, so the moon turret and moving it from one location to another. And it's really a field test to show how early excavation technologies can work on the moon. And Astrobotic's role in that is that we are providing most of the avionics and software uh, systems that are gonna be integrated in that rover, as well as a wireless charging capability that you'll see a little bit more about later. And then uh, there's some other tests that are on here. You can see some gravity offloading of uh, a Moon Ranger rover prototype uh, one of the cool things about building some of these smaller rovers is that we can just fill up a really big balloon and gravity offload it that way. Um, it's a lot easier than some of the larger rovers that need some more sophisticated equipment to take take the rover down to one six gravity. Uh, in this case, we just tie a really big balloon to it, and uh, we can't we are not offloading the regolith as the rover as the rover is driving. So that is one uh, discrepancy between testing on the moon and here, but it's still pretty good. Still gives us pretty good information about mobility and move forward. On slide 19, this is our Polaris rover. So this is, a, I mentioned before, this is our larger rover. And this is all fits under an umbrella of what we call mobility as a service. So when we go out and we talk to different customers, one of the things that we believe we've pioneered is mobility as a service. So pretty much you, the customer, will come to us and say, uh, you want to fly payload, it weighs a kilogram, you want to go, you want to survive for a day, and we'll say, okay, good, we'll take it from there. We'll make sure that the rover is designed to suit your needs, that we'll give you all the interfaces through our interface control document. We'll walk you through how to prepare for the mission, 
and that's really the service that we provide. We integrate you with the lander, we operate the rover or train you to operate the rover. And that really, that service scales with our different rover offerings, whether it's a small rover or a large rover. Uh, and then what you see here is a large rover. On slide 20, you'll see our small rover, and that's the, the cube rover. And for all the reasons I just talked about, we created this service so that it was a, it would lower the barriers to entry for groups to engage with the moon. Uh, one of the really cool, um, I guess, uh, stories um, that I've seen kind of develop as I've worked on this project is that uh, there are a lot of universities that want to engage and help plan their missions. And there's now becoming a lot more opportunities for universities to propose real science payloads that would fly to the moon. And as we work with those students and professors, they are using the Cube Rover as a baseline for their, their design and their interfaces. And one thing I am really excited about is the future where a student can come into a university, start freshman year working on a really cool science payload, and then by the time they're in their uh, senior year, their system is on the moon, integrated with a rover, and all funded through either NASA program or your university program if we can get our costs down low enough. So uh, I just, I really think that we're looking at a really cool paradigm shift for space, and uh, I'm excited for that future. On slide 21, you'll see a little bit more about where the payloads would fit inside the rover. Um, that's kind of that red highlighted area there. That's why we call this a cube rover. So we, we based it off of the CubeSat standard, which is that a CubeSat, a 1U, is, uh, carries one kilogram of payload and is 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters in dimensions. And we pretty much, uh, because CubeSats have revolutionized LEO, uh, satellites that are, are used um, by having a standardized form factor and allowing everybody to communicate the same language who's developing payloads. It helps bring down costs because now uh, launch providers can stack them in known kind of uh, areas uh, where they could place them, have the same structural interfaces, etc. Um, we want to do the same thing for, for rovers because we feel like there's uh, a lot we can improve on and how we go to the moon, engage with the moon, and, and we're seeing that this has been effective. The inside of the rover there, you see some electronics. It's actually not, those aren't our real electronics. This is just for a test. Um, the real electronics are just a, a flat, it's all on one board, and it, it doesn't go into the payload volume there. But this is a cool image that I had, so I figured I'd show it. If you go on slide 22, then you'll see that this is our Cube Rover product line. So we're, we've actively designed it to be scalable in the sense that it's not very hard for us to make a larger version of the same rover. We use the same electronics, we use the same software. Um, it's really when a rover is bigger, we just increase the wheel size and we increase the size of the size of the radiator and solar array. And with that, we can carry larger payloads, heavier payloads. We can provide more power because we can fit more batteries on board. And kind of what you see in each of these columns are the different capabilities that each of those rovers provide. So if anybody has any questions about this or you're designing anything for your upcoming missions, then we'd love to talk to you more about it. Um, this is just, this is also available in our payload users guide, which is on our, our company website. On slide 23. Are, are you the, leaving it up to the payload guys to provide any uh, heat rejection or radiators or anything like that? Good question. Uh, so we actually, we control the thermal environment as long as the payload is inside of our thermally 
a protected envelope, thermally controlled envelope, uh, then we can keep that temperature range between negative 20 degrees Celsius to 60 degrees Celsius. When payloads want to be outside of that range, which is anything outside of that gold insulation that you see there, that's where the, we need to provide extra power to keep them alive. So um, we may, in some cases, require that payloads provide their own heat rejection, um, potentially extra batteries if they're going to be uh, deployed at a different location from the rover. But generally speaking, as long as the payload is inside that protected envelope, we can do everything to control the heat and give you the power that the payload needs to survive. Great. On slide 23, you'll see some examples of different instruments that we're actively working with. Um, some of them are we're integrating to our rover today. Uh, we have a neutron detector that we're putting on one of our cube rovers uh, through an SBIR contract. We have uh, ground penetrating radar that we're working on with JPL that we've already integrated on our rover. And we're going to be doing a field test with a few of the rovers and GPR uh, antennas to drive out and produce a, a bi-static uh, 3D map of the, the terrain, subterrain, uh, out near JPL's facilities. And the hope being that now we can kind of offer a really exciting mission where you spend, send a few of these small rovers out, they can map the, the subterrain of the moon. And that can be compared, uh, with surface data, like with the neutron detector to provide a really cohesive understanding of some of the different materials that are on or underneath the surface of the moon. And Mike, there are a lot of yeah. Go ahead. What are marsupial missions? Yeah, we always uh, that a lot of people ask questions about that one, so it kind of makes you think about a kangaroo. Um, <laughs> but in this case, <laughs> we're talking about um, a bunch of baby rovers that are driving her out uh, from a mama rover. Okay. Uh, so okay. a very big rover that would be supported with small rovers. So moving on to slide twenty-four. Uh, we've been maturing our rover platforms, the Cube Rover, here specifically through a number of different NASA projects. Um, there's, there's been over $15 million in investment in the platform so far, and we've tested it in all the environmental conditions. Um, these are screenshots, some of videos um, that I wasn't able to, to link here, but uh, you can see some mobility testing happening in the top middle picture. Unfortunately, it looks like the top right image was cut off there. Um, but that was a vib vibration test. On the far left image, I always love to show this video. Um, I wasn't able to include it here, but uh, this is actually how we deploy from the lander. So in the far left, you can see the, the rover is actually suspended from very small cables that are attached to the rig that we built there. And we bolt the rover up underneath the, the bottom of a lander deck. It's held there by what we call hold-down release mechanisms. Once the lander lands, we fire those mechanisms. And then the lander, the rover hangs suspended by cables. And then we use the wheels to release the cables. We kind of gently lower ourselves down to the ground like a spider from a web. And we point the rover facing down as we're lowering so we can see the obstacles underneath us. And then once we're on the ground, we drive, we rotate our wheels a little bit more to the point where hooks that are attached to the grousers pop out and then the rover can drive and, and start its mission. We found this to be a very effective way to reduce mass of a deployment system 
And because our rover is designed to survive the extreme environments, it also reduces the heat that's needed to, to keep it alive during transit. So we actually uh, recently submitted a patent for this, um, and we're, we're really excited by hopefully the, the again, barriers that entry distance can reduce for, for future groups. Uh, bottom middle, you can see an actual picture of our engineering unit bolted up to our Peregrine Lander engineering unit. And then we have some images in the bottom right of uh, thermal vacuum testing and uh, electro uh, uh, magnetic interference testing. I'm going to pause for a second here. Um, does anybody have any questions? I have a few slides left, but um, I can try to breeze through those in the end. All your rovers have four wheels. A lot of people are driving around with six-wheeled rovers. Why only four wheels? Ah, good question. Uh, so we are we're doing it from the perspective that we're trying to keep the mass down as much as possible because the mass is what costs a lot. So definitely recognize that there are more capable rovers out there that can do lots of complex types of mission sorties, but we really designed this with the, the idea that we would reduce costs as much as possible. Yeah, this is Carl again. I have a question. Like, uh, you mentioned um, making maps as you're landing and comparing them in real time to maps from LRO to support decision landing. Are, are these maps going to be, uh, as you get closer to the surface, higher precision, higher fidelity than what currently exists? And what would you do with that information? That's something you can provide scientists or or what? Definitely. Yeah, they, they will be higher precision. I wish I could give you, Carl, the, the number off the top of my head. I don't have it. Um, if you are interested in knowing that precision I, and you want to follow up with me, though, I'd be happy to try to get that answer for you um, if it's shareable. <laughs> Sometimes that information can be a little competitive uh, between the different providers, so um, I'll have to check with the team if they're willing to share that. But it will be higher fidelity. I think yeah. we have an NDA with you for uh, LSIC, right? We probably do, so you could share with us without, yep. I think, worrying, worrying about it. I'm also interested yeah. in how would you want to disseminate it? Would that be like a data buy? Would you sell it to interested parties or, or what? Have you considered data buy from that perspective, be buy from your perspective, you sell? We are actively considering that as part of our business model. Uh, there are also instruments on board that that is their mission to take higher fidelity images while we're landing and measure things like the plume uh, blast ejected that's created by the lander. So. Some of that information is going to be available to NASA because those are the instruments that are on board. Um, but as far as the Astrobotic data goes, yeah, Astrobotic will own that data. Um, I don't think uh, – I'm not as actively involved in this discussion, but I don't think we've made a decision yet on whether or not we would release that publicly or whether or not we would sell that information for specific use cases. So I guess the answer for now is uh, to be continued. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Great. All right, so breezing through these last couple of slides here on slide 25, you see an image here. I talked a lot about how payloads fit inside our standard payload envelope of the Q rover, but we've also developed non-standard configurations for groups that want to have instruments that raise far above the radiator, for example, or want to have instruments exposed to the environment uh, for whatever reason. Here you can kind of see an example of an instrument above our radiator on slide 26. You can see another example of uh, an instrument, uh, a probe that was raising uh, a couple of uh, meters above the rover, as well as um, uh, 
a spectrometer that's poking out through the insulation, along with the light um, to drive into shadowed regions. And on slide 27, you can see an image of an equatorial configuration. So you'll see that the arrays are, are pointed differently and designed differently to support the different mission location. And then with that, we have to change things like uh, our coatings to, to uh, change our emissivity at the location. Uh, and then also change like the number of layers and our, our multi-layer insulation. So it's not as quite as easy as just changing the solar array out. There are some other nuances we have to address, but um, we are actively designing those different configurations now. So I'm going to shift now into power services on slide 28. One of our recent announcements was around the idea of a Luna grid. And this is created through using our vertical solar array technology that we were fortunately awarded. Um, we were recently down selected among uh, two other companies to build uh, a solar array that would act as the backbone of the power grid. So these are really big uh, systems. This, our, our system is uh, 60 feet tall. So uh, we use a ROSA. Actually, I heard somebody here on the line from Redwire. So um, we're partnered with Redwire. They're doing a great job. They're building the, the ROSA, that, the same ROSA that's used on the International Space Station, we're putting on our, our VSAT, or we call our, our lunar infrastructure trailer. And then we can drive it around to different locations on the moon. Uh, I'll, actually, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the specific design of the VSAT, but um, we also can hook up cables between VSATs so that we can create an interconnected grid between different nodes of what we're calling lunar grid. And then that allows assets that can drive up next to the grid to receive power, whether that's through a cable connection or through our wireless chargers, which are a much easier interface to use, about 80 to 85 percent efficient, work very well in the lunar dust environment, and um, generally we think are going to be probably one of the preferred interfaces for, for power transfer. So you'll see a little bit more about that, but that's kind of the, the high-level overview. Um, and actually, we can we can fit a VSAT on one of our landers uh, right now, so all this can be delivered using the existing uh, systems that are, are here today. So on, I'm going to shift forward. I'm going to go past slide 29 right to slide 30. And slide 30, you see kind of an overview of what our VSAT looks like. Uh, we have a gimbal on board that allows it to articulate itself and track the sun. It also allows it to level in uneven terrain, so up to 15 degrees uh, of terrain instability. Uh, I've already talked about the height. There's about a 10-meter offset, uh, and then there's about a 10-meter uh, populated solar cell area of uh, the ROSA, the rollout solar array. And uh, the reason why that's so high up is so that it can track the sun and not have to worry as much about terrain-obstructed locations at the poles of the moon. So because of the long shadows at the poles, it's really good to be higher up and try to avoid terrain as much as possible that can cast a shadow. Um, this is designed to produce about 10 kilowatts of power, and um, we're hoping that that's enough based on a lot of the surveys we've seen actually by the, the APL team uh, from the, the LSIC community. There's been a lot of good input in terms of what the power needs are. So we're actively taking those inputs into the design of our VSAT. I'm going to move forward now. We'll go can ahead. it uh, re referral once it's deployed? Yeah, it can. Um, it actually only takes oh, a couple cool. of minutes. It takes like, I think it takes like five minutes. 
which is kind of crazy for the size of the system um, in terms of uh, deployment and retraction. Um, but we tested it, uh, Redwires tested it, and uh, we need to support a minimum of 10 deployment and retraction cycles on the moon. So moving uh, forward onto slide, I'm going to zoom past 31 onto slide 32. This is our wireless charger technology. So we're partnered with a company called Wibotic. They're based out in Seattle. They've designed wireless chargers to work in industrial environments, harsh industrial environments, underwater environments. And we ultimately partnered with them to bring their technology to the moon. And for many reasons, um, it's very hard to charge, receive power on the moon. Power is king once you get on the surface. It enables lots of different operations, activities. And when it's dusty and you need to plug in to like a physically mated connection, it can be very difficult because you can have dust that gets in there and fouls up the connection, creates arcing. Um, it can also be very difficult to localize and then have your system dock with a system with that kind of precision. And then also, if you're using a robotic system, then you need enough force in the system to actually create the docking connection in the first place. So uh, we created this charging system as a way, or we, we brought this charging system from Earth to space as a way to make that a lot easier for everybody. And we tested it on the ground with lots of different stimulants. We've actually packed four centimeters of regolith between the, the transmitter and the receiver, and it ha has a, no effect on the system. And we have a 125-watt system and a 400-watt system that are available. And um, let's see what else here. The, I guess just the way the system works is that it has a, a transmitter electronics box that would be hooked up to the, the host power source, whether that's a lander or a VSAT. And then it has a coil that uh, is attached to it through a wire that is used as the interface to transfer power wirelessly over to the receiver coil. And that receiver coil is mounted to the asset that is being powered. And that is connected through a cable to the onboard electronics, uh, which are also mounted on the asset. So really the wireless interface is between the transmitter coil and the receiver coil. And um, it's about four centimeters of uh, space that we can put between them before we start to lose efficiency in power transfer. So actually on slide 33, I talk a little bit more about some of the capabilities there, and it can tolerate uh, the, not only the four centimeter gap, but we can come at it from a 70 degree angle uh, in terms of misalignment. We can be offset vertically or horizontally by about five centimeters and still get a full charge out of it. Uh, the pilot excavator team is using this to fly on their upcoming mission uh, at the Kennedy Space Center and they charge their whole system up in a little over two hours. Um, I don't actually have any public videos to share about that, but it's uh, it's been a very effective system for what they need to use it for. So we're now engaging with groups like the Artemis teams as ways to use this to power astronaut suits, put this on lunar terrain vehicles as a way to power tools. Um, we're really, I think we're just scratching the, the surface of, of different ways we can use this in space. And uh, on slide 34, I, I talked a little bit about how the pilot excavator team is using this. You kind of see some pictures here of how the rover drives underneath what would be a, a surrogate or a fake lander that has a, a transmitter coil on it. And then uh, in this case, the rover raised itself up to receive power. And then uh, it dropped itself down and went off and completed some more digging. 
My last slide is on 35, and it shows you a little bit more pictures of how we put this on some of our smaller systems. Uh, we're going to be at one of the workshops that NASA is hosting called the CLIPS Survive the Night Workshop out on uh, December 6th at GRC, actually. Um, so excited to be there, and we're going to be doing some demonstrations with this tech. And um, really, we're thinking that this has the capability to allow assets to survive the lunar night as well. Because as long as there's a transmitter and receiver and there's a, a power source, then anything can drive up next to the pull power from it to keep their heaters running and keep everything warm inside the, the different systems. So a lot of good stuff going on. Um, I hope that this was helpful. I hope that this is interesting. Uh, shows you a little bit more about what we're doing on the power side, the delivery side to the moon and on the moon. And um, just generally, uh, it's just been an exciting ride. So I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has uh, in the last couple of minutes here. Great. Thank you. Mike, that is just absolutely terrific, fascinating, great presentation, et cetera, et cetera. This is wonderful. And we do have several minutes left in our nominal one-hour period, and I wonder if folks have questions for Mike. Yeah, this is Dan, Mike. I, I've got one. You know, I was, I'm really interested in the, the fact that Lunar Grid, your, your power system, is actually on a rover. And, and I was wondering, you know, what, what does mobility offer a power system? And I think your answer is your wireless power system. That is, you could basically take your, your lunar grid and you drive it over to where the power is needed. Is, is that what you're thinking? That's exactly right. Yeah, we, we want to make sure there, there are a lot of benefits of being mobile. Um, there's, a, there's a few things to note on that question, which is a very good question. Is One, we have found a way to put an entire power substation on our VSAT. So we can boost power up to high voltages in order to keep the mass of our cables down and transmit over very long distances. And that in and of itself removes a lot of mass in terms of flying other systems. Like traditionally, we see on Earth, there's a lot of power substations, a lot of equipment machinery that's required to do that. Um, so one, uh, it's a lot more compact, and we fit it on uh, on one system. Two, the mobile element allows us to park the VSAT in different locations of strategic interest. So, for example, you may be operating in a crater. We can drive the VSAT to the crater rim, and we can run a smaller cube rover out with a cable affixed to it down into the crater so that something that's operating in that crater, whether it's a ISRU plant or whether it's um, some excavation machine, uh, it doesn't need to come out of the shadow. We can just drive right up to the interface, receive power, continue its mission, keep the, the duty cycle um, pretty good. And then uh, really we're trying to just increase the flexibility, the number of missions that can be supported. And this doesn't require our lander then to have as much precision to land on something potentially dangerous like a crater rim. Um, so, yeah, I, I, we really want this to be used for missions like the Decadal missions, the Clips missions, um, not just the, the really big ones. Uh, we think that there's a lot of potential to use this in some of the smaller missions that are coming up, and hopefully mobility will, will help that. Okay, that's great to hear. Thanks very much. Well, the one thing for sure, I mean, the moon's a big place, and we don't know exactly where we need power yet. You know, I mean, we keep talking about Shackleton Crater, but, you know, there'll be a lot of uncertainty and they'll want to reposition uh, that system uh, over its lifetime. It, it's a great point. And, you know, for example, one of the things that we've been talking about, it's a, it's a fascinating topic, but, um, 
wherever the resources are, are where people are going to want to go. And we want to have the ability to move there, park our assets, use them to power other systems, and create the economic infrastructure so that really the U.S. can take the lead in terms of pioneering uh, how we, we create a power infrastructure and then everybody else can hop on board and we would be happy to support them. Um, but I think that there's the more we can find out about those sites uh, where the resources are located and the more mobile we are to go to those sites as needed, it's going to be very important. I'd encourage you to also look at beamed thermal energy, not just, uh, you know, um, conductors bringing electrical power or, uh, or um, you know, having to convert um, uh, beamed energy through um, 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 solar cells. The, you know, if you think about it, it's thermal power that, that drove the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and, and there's lots of uh, ISRU processes and drills and even turbo generators that could be run off of thermal power and not have to, and which would be a lot less, a lot more efficient to transfer than than uh, electrical power, I would think, and by beam. It's a great point. And, and there are actually some interesting power beaming technologies that are popping up that we're starting to explore more now. I think we have a long way to go in advancing that technology, but it is great tech. I'd like to talk to you more about that. I did a little look at it myself. I'll, I'll send Please you Please do. That. Okay, great. Other questions? We've got a few minutes until we reach the top of the hour here. Other questions? Well, I have I have a question that's coming out of very much out of left field, Mike, uh, for you, but not for me because I've gotten involved in uh, – an academic sociological um, study, which explains my question. As we know from just some of our personal experience, what we read and so on, that there are there's a sub you know, subculture in the U.S. probably around the world that uh, denies, doesn't believe that humans ever walked on the surface of the moon. It was a you know it was a NASA <laughs> conspiracy in the 1960s or the 1970s. So that that's I think we all agree that. And here's the left field question, but as I said, it's based on a, a study that some of us are getting involved in. Has that issue, the fact that there's a, you know, a subculture, a subpopulation that denies that um, humans have ever gone to the moon, has that ever impacted the work of, um, of you folks or anybody that you know of, of astrobiotic or anybody else? That's a good question. You know, I've never received that question before, and I have to admit I am giggling a little bit over here. <laughs> uh, I, I, no, I don't think that has impacted us. I think that uh, fortunately the groups that we work with primarily are are the the space enthusiasts. NASA is a, a very big customer of ours, so uh, NASA knows very well that, that we've been to the moon. I think that just generally I'll say that we're hopeful that we're going to help debunk that myth even further by sending our own systems up there and taking pictures and getting it back to Earth. But uh, we haven't had anybody um, in a big way impact our mission uh, or success uh, yet. That's good to hear, although, although you've got some very impressive videos I looked ahead and some some great fabrications and models here, which, of course, gives um, those conspiracy folks a lot of evidence that you all are going to be involved in a conspiracy 
um, about uh, whether or not we will be ever. But anyway, you know where I'm getting with that. Interesting. So sure. we have, you know, we have run across, and as far as this other activity we got, we have run across some other professionals, technically and scientifically, knowledgeable, historically, knowledgeable, who have said that they have had a tiny bit of, tiny bit of trouble and pushback from some folks um, who, who are in, in denial. Anyway, that's another topic for another time. This is a terrific presentation. Uh, Any you're, other you're, just gonna, you're just going to send your rovers to the same labs that they faked the landings on anyway, so who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like NASA's, already, NASA's already disassembled the sound stages where they used to, they used to fake the Apollo moon landings. Um, well, we've hired some very good graphic artists, and if you squint really hard at our pictures, uh, we might be able to convince <laughs> you that we've already landed on the moon. Okay, let's uh, um, thank you for the time. <laughs> thank you, Mike. Other, how about our last question? Quick question. Anybody have one? Okay, all right. As I said when I began, my question, uh, Mike, this is a terrific presentation. Great graphics. I believe we've already gone to the moon with uh, with astrobotics. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for having me. It, it was a pleasure, and I, I hope that we're able to come back again in the future, and, and I hope that this maybe set some light bulbs off into people's heads, and I'm yeah. looking forward to, to seeing you all reach out and hopefully put you in touch with the right people to keep these conversations going. Great. Thank you for your presentation and your openness openness to um, get additional questions from the, from the audience here. So, everybody, thank you very much. And we'll be talking to many of you next Wednesday at our next FISO seminar series. So bye for now.